Uh, we are back. I am Andrew Langer. This is WBAL News Radio 1090 and FM 101.5. I have been eager, eager, eager to do this interview uh, ever since the opportunity came up. My guest is Chris Hillman, uh, one of the founding members of The Birds. Uh, he's got a book out. It is a great book. I have read it. I'm going to tell Chris uh, how much I enjoyed it in just a second. The book is called Time Between My Life as a Bird, Burrito Brother, and Beyond. You can get signed hardcover copies of it at chrishillman.com. And i got to tell you, Chris, um, I your, your publicist sent me a copy of the book. Uh, I turned around and actually went ahead and ordered it on Amazon Kindle uh, so I could make sure I had it with me everywhere. It is fantastic. It gives a Thank tremendous insight into uh, into your work. Let me let me ask you this because I, I know you're going to quiz me on it, but I want to start here. Your love of bluegrass. I, I was a bluegrass fan when I was a kid. I know you've done mm -hmm. some work with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Will the Circle Be Unbroken is an album mm -hmm. that uh, is a cherished part of my collection, actually in, in multiple formats. Talk about how your love of bluegrass began. How did, how did that happen? Where did it go? Tell us all about that. Well, um, Andrew, you know, I, I really stumbled into it. I, I, um, I always think that I think rock and roll, here I was at my age, my group, my peer group, we, all, we were all about 11, 10, 11, 12 years old when Elvis came out, and then for the next few years, 56, 7, 8, right? The most incredible music is on the radio. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, everything. Everything that influenced sure. the Beatles and all of us. About 1959, it went to sleep, I thought. This is my own. This is just me talking. And sure. uh, all of a sudden, Pat Boone was singing Tutti Frutti. Well, that's okay. With all due respect, I, I have great respect for Pat Boone. But all of a sudden, there was Fabian, Frankie Avalon, all that stuff. And that was fine. But what came along, uh, uh, that door uh, opens when those guys are, are getting on the radio, AM radio. And then what came along uh, uh, was folk music from the college campuses and jazz, yeah. late 50s, early 60s. So I really got discovered bluegrass through first learning, listening to folk music. So I'll tell you who I listened to. Okay. Uh, Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Lead Belly, loved him. Loved sure. him. Weavers and Pete Seeger. And my sister, older sister, was a wonderful, wonderful person who's not with us anymore, but mm. really got me into, into that kind of music because I, I had heard the Kingston Trio. They had a big hit with Tom Dooley and, and liked it sort of, but I really liked the more traditional stuff. Sure. But in the interim, as I go through that, I hear the New Lost City Ramblers first, which is an old-time string band oh, group yeah. with a Peach Brother Mike Seeger was playing mandolin. So that was another thing. I went, oh, what's he doing? What's that instrument? So then I hear bluegrass. I went, oh, my God. Okay, what got me? Andrew, it was exciting. It was positive, up-tempo. It was hillbilly jazz. It was um, improvisational, and the vocals killed me. I loved the singing, two-part, three-part, four-part singing. So that was it. I, had, I loved it. I, I barely could find bluegrass records when I, where sure. I was growing up in, in North San Diego County. Really could never find any. And I finally got hold of a mandolin. I got hold of a guitar, which is all in the book. It's uh, oh, pretty yes. well, uh, uh, yeah, as you know. And, and um, 
and there, and I stuck, and I still, I, I still love the music. I sort of tend to listen to the older stuff, but uh, it's great stuff, and it's it's us part of our culture as jazz and blues are, and everything else that we we, we gave to the world. It's it's funny, and, and, because... and even the Beatles, even the Beatles. Uh, uh, sure. I'm so long-winded answer, but no. even the Beatles listened, heard it, and they heard. Uh, the excitement in that groove, in that kind of two-four groove, as evidenced by "I've Just Seen a Face" or sure. uh, or the the Buck Owens song, "They're Going to Put Me in the Movies," well, etc. So that's the then, end of my. And then, of course, <laughs> right, Chris, the Beatles harmonies. You know, you think about that, yeah. and you know that some of that had to have uh, come from from some of these American influences. I exactly mean, right. You, you, uh, you know, it, it, we could we could talk all, all about the the, the Hollies and and. And Graham mm-hmm. Nash uh, and and Alan's um, uh, love of of the Everly Brothers, but let me let me tell you actually a real quick anecdote here because my wife and I went to pick up a car in Boone, North Carolina, and mm-hmm. I was a huge Doc Watson fan. Still, I'm a huge Doc Watson fan growing up, and I know you've played you you played at the you're playing at the Birchmere in April of 2022. I know the last time you played there uh, was a few years back. We my wife and I saw Doc Watson at the Birchmere. Uh, mm-hmm. A few years before he passed, but we were when we drove down to North Carolina, we drove through Doc Watson's hometown, and we were um, we had no idea that's where we we're going. It was it was it was a near religious experience for us. Yeah. The book, the book is fantastic. Again, the 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 title is the uh, is Time Between My Life as a Bird, Burrito Brother, and Beyond. Tell us about writing it. Why now? I mean, you know, it is a it is a, a fascinating catalog of of your life, which is a. You know your story is a, is a, a fascinating one and an amazing one, and the, the trauma of your childhood and uh, you know an idyllic early childhood and then trauma later on, and then the, the sort of you're going from from you know bluegrass to folk to folk rock, and then and then back to sort of what you know you know mm-hmm. uh, what do they call it uh, uh, country rock. Uh, but talk about uh, about writing the book. Funny enough, Andrew, I just sort of, I don't know, seven, six, seven years ago, I i started to write it, and I, I don't know, I just, you know, um, I liked the, the process. I liked sitting down every day and writing, and I could remember things. And I don't really make a habit of reading people's autobiographies. I did read Linda Ronstadt's, okay. and I was very impressed with Linda's way that she, how she uh, handled it. It was all about music. Sure. And I remembered that, and she never denigrated anybody she worked with yeah. or anything and, and put that in print. And uh, actually, uh, in the process, in the midst of writing this book, uh, which it didn't take me seven years, but it did sit on the shelf for a while. And I finally said to my wife, I said, maybe we should go find a publisher and see if we sure. want to do Because I originally was going to just write this for my kids, and now, and now we have grandkids. So here's what Papa did. I'm, I'm not Grandpa, yeah. I'm Papa. So here's what Papa did. So, um, But then it started to develop, and um, we did we, – we were approached by BMG. And they were very interested. They wanted to read some of it. They had this fellow, Scott B. Bomar, who runs the publishing end of it. He said, can I read some of your book? I heard you were writing a memoir. I said, hey, sure. So I sent him a couple chapters. And he calls me back in two days, Andrew. He said, let's talk. So all of a sudden, we had a, a, a publishing deal on the table, and it got serious. So I really went back in and started to rewrite it, re-edit it. I had some wonderful people helping me, my wife, my daughter. Uh, helping me edit this book, and um, it just came together. And I sure. remembered Linda's book 
And, yeah, I worked with some people that I really wanted to strangle sometimes. But <laughs> I didn't feel that writing about that was relevant. I thought, let's, let me, let's write about really what they were, who they were, what they were about, the talent they had. And everybody Chris, I worked with had immense amount of talent. Let me let me ask you this because that's one of the themes. And, and I, believe me, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to, to to bash anyone. David Crosby immediately comes to mind, who I'm a <laughs> massive fan of. But well, one of the things you well, talk well, about, I'm and, give a dispensation on that. Okay, go ahead. I'm yes, sorry. but 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 but, but, the, but interestingly enough. When you do talk about the personalities, you humanize them very much. You humanize David Crosby um, and, and sort of his issues, the demons that he struggles with. But you talk about also your bandmate, Gene Clark. You talk about Michael Clark. And one of the things mm-hmm. that, that comes up, at least in my mind, is this idea of, of normal people who are very talented, right? But they are exceedingly normal people who come from normal lives. They rocket to stardom, and that stardom is difficult to handle. You, you talk about Gene Clark sort of not being able to handle the, the travel schedule. And as I said, mm-hmm. you're very charitable. You're very human about this. But but talk about mm-hmm. about you know other uh, Graham Parsons you know you, you, the folks who just seem to be unable to sort of deal with this and it and it manifests mm-hmm. any sort of personality quirks get magnified. Talk about that. Funny enough, I spent a few hours uh, on Dwight Yoakam's uh, XM Serious Radio Show yesterday. Mm. Uh, I, I go I go on quite a bit, and it's very nice of him. He always and he's I love to talk to Dwight. Dwight Dwight is very very intelligent. Right. And we were talking about success and how it can uh, just take the, uh, the the kid with the dream, right? Sure. And all of a sudden, it's working, and you, you've got a hit record and this and that, and then there's some roadblocks thrown up. Now, I could put it into a, a, a satanic mode. Uh, that mm-hmm. the, the bad guy is saying, hey, you know, this is that. It is... Um, uh, it's it's an interesting uh, business being an actor or a singer songwriter or an author or whatever. But there's the element of um, uh, it's it's just not conducive. You have to really really measure out your time. Let me yeah. put it this way: when I crossed the threshold of my home in in you know years past, after a tour, I had to remember that where I was going from being paid a lot of attention to and fawned over on sure. the road. When I got home, there were my kids and my wife, and I left that stuff outside the door sure. because they were the priority. And it got to a point when I was in the Desert Rose Band where I was missing my daughter's birthday. I was on the road so much, and we had a very successful band, a lot of yeah. hit, hits on country radio. And I finally said it's time for us to... Um, um, I have a little hiatus. If not, just let it go. Yeah. And I thought that I was I was missing out on on the family and all that. That was far more important and still is a, a priority in my life. But um, gosh, did I go, go off on a tangent there? I'm you sorry. did, but where it's, were we? But it's, it, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the trappings of stardom and how they magnify yeah. for people. And I think you. But I, I'm going think... to make a point clear about Please. Gene Clark. Uh, what a prolific songwriter! And yeah. yes, he had so many issues. And when I first met Gene, he was a Kansas farm boy. I mean, he was just a wonderful guy, and he was throughout his life, but he was constantly having to f- battle with the with the, the demons that, yeah. that were he was dealing with. Uh, and I, I must say, I, I worked on every one of his records after The Birds, which was really wow. a pleasure. I loved his songs and how he 
he was a great singer. He just looked good, and but it just never could ever get over that bad part. He couldn't sure. get over that big bump in the road. Now, interestingly enough, Graham Parsons also had had the talent, but the problem with Graham was. Um, he had a trust fund, and I'm telling you why this is, uh, was a problem. Sure. Every year, he, every January, uh, Andrew, he would get $55,000. Wow. Okay, well, that's, in 1968, when I started sure. working with him, that was a fortune. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I mean, everybody that has the aspirations to, to be, I want to be, a, I wanna be a, an actor. I wanna be, you're going to starve. You're going to struggle. To, yes. to achieve the goal, and it's not going to be a challenge or a struggle if you if you've got a heck of a safety net like that. Sure. I think that held Graham back. I really, me, really think it held him back. So anyway, I had a I had a conversation the other day in the wake of of Charlie Rose's passing. Frank Aniello from a band called the Fab Fo. He's a guitarist, one of the founders of this band, the Fab Fo. Not sure if you're familiar with them. They 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 break down mm-hmm. Beatles music and they reproduce the album sound live on stage. Um, Frank heard that I was talking with you. He was very excited uh, about this. He had a question uh, he wanted me to ask you. Um, yeah. and, and he said, uh, he says, uh, I'd be interested, this is him talking, if he has any insight to the question, did Graham Parsons have any uncredited writing input for Wild Horses? He says he has a friend who used to say, oh, come on, Graham wrote that song. Do you have any, do you have any mm-hmm. insight into this? Yes. Uh, no, he had no no uh, uh, part in the writing of that song. Okay. Um, uh, Jagger, uh, Ke- uh, Mick, and Keith wrote that, and somehow Graham had heard it, uh, and literally begging them to, if we could cut it. And I, wow. I just wasn't that taken. I wasn't taken by the song, Andrew. And that was just me again. I said, I don't know. This is sort of very maudlin, uh, you know. It's nice. I like the tr- I like the lyric. Uh, Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Sure, but. He was, uh, you know, I mean, uh, this goes back in the book. As you remember, I write about uh, Mick and Keith taking Roger McGuinn and I to Stonehenge. And Graham was with us in the band. He's, uh, he, that's when we had hired him. And But Graham became very enamored with the Stones at that point And just sure. was, you know, and that's the end of the story. So and, it's all in the book. And the book, know. the book, of course, is called Time Between, My Life as a Bird, Burrito Brother, and Beyond. You can get signed hardcover copies in fact i'm probably going to do that myself chris uh, at chrishillman.com we'll put the link up on mm-hmm. the andrew langer show page on facebook uh, i got a got a, a, more questions here if it's okay i mean we're, sure. we're talking a, about about these things we're talking about the mm-hmm. book how do you how did you make i mean well, i know it's in the book you talk about making the transition from bluegrass to folk rock uh, you were introduced to the other members of the birds. You heard uh, Roger, then Jim McGuinn mm-hmm. singing. Uh, you heard Crosby singing. Um, mm-hmm. How was that trans? How was that transition for you? I didn't know them, but I did hear, hear uh, the Troubadour uh, Folk Club was uh, sort of the, the the place to go on Monday nights. Uh, they'd have an open mic hoot night. Sure, who and right down the street, in, within a matter of four blocks, was the Ashgrove, where and they would bring in Lightning Hopkins and Bill Monroe and all the cool stuff. Oh, wow. But this was 1964, and uh, the Troubadour, and I actually was in one one Monday night, and I either had played the Hoot Night or something. But uh, this guy gets up on stage with a Gibson 12-string acoustic guitar and mm-hmm. sings, "I want to hold your hand," and I went, yes. "Wow!" I said, "That's the Beatles song." It was Jim McGuinn, and he did it with such com- uh, a commitment. I went, 
that's really good. And what guts to go do that, sure. right? And then uh, as it went, as time passed by, I had already been working with the gentleman, Jim Dixon, who was, who was working with uh, uh, Gene Clark and David Crosby and Roger McGuinn and, and trying to you know, develop their sound. And he asked me to come down and listen to them at the studio we were, they were using. And I went down after my gig I had at, uh, at work. I got out of, off this gig I was yeah. working on in Bluegrass show, show, uh, Group. Uh, and I heard them sing, and they were. I said, "Wow, they, they sound great." Well, listen, Andrew, my standards were way up. I'd been working with Vern Gosden and his oh, yeah. brother Rex, and Vern, Go- those guys could sing like angels. So I go in to hear these three guys sing, and I went, "They got it. Wow. They really got it." And I told Jim Dixon, "I said they've got this. Is great. They sound great. Good luck." So I Crosby. go back to my. Huh? Excuse me. No, I was just going to say, keep going because I'll ask my question about about rehearsing okay. in the in the studio space. But but please go ahead. Oh, oh no, I just went back to my gig. I had this gig. The Greengrass Group was just absolutely dreadful, but it was uh, I could make I could eat. Okay, sure. it was a terrible band. It was almost <laughs> like it was like the Beverly Hillbillies sure. put to music. And was, was uh, this was I go band, back to the gig, it, and then time I out get for a second. Chris, was this the band where the the guy who put you all together was writing these awful songs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, just, was, yeah. I mean, that and, sounded and, uh, just like the most horrible, horrific hor- situation to be in. Awful. So yeah. I go back, and then about uh, a week or two later, Jim Dixon calls me. He said, um, can you play the bass? I, and I'm going, yeah, I took right. me about two seconds. I went, okay, where are we going here? He's going <laughs> to. And I say, he says, he says David Crossy was going to be the bass player, but he doesn't feel comfortable. Can you play bass? And I went, uh, I can handle it. Sure. Well, I was lying through my teeth. But, but isn't that the way these things bass. happen, right? I mean, Chris, yeah, isn't that yeah, the exactly. way things, these things happen? Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, well, it's just, I see this door opening, as it did in my life, throughout my whole life. I'd always see this wonderful door sure. opportunity open up. But I said, yeah, I can, I, I can handle it. I didn't say I think I can handle it. I said, I can handle that. And he says, well, can you come down, blah, blah, blah. Can you find a base or something? I can't remember if I found... This fifty dollar base. I remember that the, the sum fifty dollars sure. was not not good, or if, if the, they got one down there for me to borrow. But I go down to this studio, uh, World Pacific Studios, uh, at one in the morning, and there's one amplifier, and Rogers plugged into it, and uh, he's got an acoustic twelve with a pickup on it, and so I go, okay. I didn't know them. I said, hi, I'm Chris. Da da da. I plug in. Uh, uh, Gene's playing. Uh, Mike's, Mike Clark has barely has a drum kit. You can see this in the book, but oh yeah, uh, I we I assumed oh, I was walking in that they were already just unbelievably together and tight and all that. And I walk in and I I thought for a minute it was a, a skiffle band, a jug band, okay. like Lonnie Donegan, you know, <laughs> uh, with the gear. They had no gear. So anyway, uh, it worked out. I got the job, but this is the funny part. So when I was on the road about a year and a half ago, two years ago, with Roger McGuinn and Marty Stewart, and one night after the show, I said, hey, Roger, I said, how many guys did you call for the bass job in the birds? He said, you. You were the only one. I said, really? He goes, why are you asking me now 55 (laughs) years later? (laughs) 
I said, I don't know. I said, I don't know. I just thought of that. I thought, I said, so they must funny. have called, you know. And uh, he said, no, you, you, you fit. It worked. And, and, yeah. and you turned into a really good bass player, which was very nice of him to say. Because when I started, Andrew, I was struggling. Sure. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was but a man that's why player. you have the benefits yeah. of recording in that, in that studio space every night. Because you could play yes, stuff and then hear it back. Crosby was just on Sirius XM talking about that. I mean, that's yeah. a tremendous opportunity. Uh, the book, of course, is uh, is Time Between My Life as a Bird, Burrito Brother, and Beyond. My guess is Chris Hillman. You can get signed copies, hardcover copies of this at chrishillman.com. He's going to be at the Birchmere next April, uh, April of 2022. I can't wait till mm-hmm. you're there. Let me ask you this. As the birds are, 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 are changing, as personnel's leaving, you know, David Crosby leaves, Gene Clark leaves, um, you have to step uh, out from just being a musician. You talk about this in the book. You were someone who was very comfortable being in the background. You loved the music. You loved playing the music. But you I don't think, at least I, the way I understood it, you didn't really seek the spotlight. How was that transition from sort of stepping out and stepping into being a, a, a lead vocalist and, and, and being more in that spotlight? Well, mostly I had, I was so shy. I, had, I really didn't have the confidence uh, I had a lack of confidence. I did sing. You know, I remember at Ciro's, sure. I was thinking the other day when we played Ciro's, we were in there for so long doing three sets a night, uh, which was a nightclub on the Sunset and, and, Strip. And, and, and I'm sorry, Chris, sing- to interrupt. Hold on, let me interrupt for a second, Chris. And to, to let folks know, when, when Chris Hillman played at Ciro's, that's when his mother knew that he had finally made it because that was a big thing for him. You talk oh, about that well, in the book they, as well. well. My folks would go to Ciro's in the four, uh, 30s and 40s. I mean, that nightclubs were huge uh, all yes. over. Chicago, New York, Atlanta, whatever. Uh, but uh, I did sing at Ciro's occasionally. Uh, but when David, excuse me, when Gene left, um, I did go up to the front line and, and start singing more parts and stuff with him. I had wonderful teachers. Yeah. Uh I could sing, Andrew, but I didn't have the commitment yet. I didn't really sure. wasn't a very good a- I wasn't a good actor, and that's what you have to be. So I, I'm, I've got David and, and uh, Roger and Gene, and wonderful, wonderful people to listen to and learn how to phrase. Singing's all about phrasing okay. the lyric. And I got my confidence, and I learned how to sing over the years, and then I began writing songs in the birds around 1966. And we were going really well. I just, I, I, I must tell you, it was one of the greatest uh, experiences and opportunities I ever had in my life. But I went on with other things and had equally wonderful times. Well, I was always, first and foremost, a musician. I didn't want to be Bruce Springsteen. I wasn't good sure. enough. Or, or, or anybody that, that's a solo, uh, Jackson Brown or anybody. Sure. Um, but... I was a musician, and it's funny, the last interview Tom Petty did uh, was for the Los Angeles Times, oh, yeah. and and Tom had just worked on uh, producing my album, and he says, you know, Chris is a funny guy. I love him. He's got a great sense of humor, but I don't think he ever liked show business. <laughs> he was a real musician's musician, yeah. and I read that, and I went, he's got it, because yeah. I didn't. Andrew, I didn't care if I was in a limousine. You know, I, I just wanted it all to work. I wanted sure. everybody to, to, to be engaging with each other on stage and performing and it i actually i don't know how i even realized that at a young age but uh that we were up there to make people feel good and somebody shells out the money to hear yes to be entertained we have to do that whether we have oh. to play turn 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 a thousand times you gotta Chris, do it you gotta let me tell you yeah. something I, I went and saw my wife and i went to see uh the on the last simon and garfunkel reunion tour we went we spent mm-hmm. the money we spent the money to sit up front 
And right, right. it was one of the most uncomfortable situations. Again, uh, like oh. watching some of these performances of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right, where they where they yeah, weren't looking yeah. at each other. Uh, Simon and oh, Garfunkel yeah. not looking at each other, and yeah. and it was it was not it was not fun to be there. I mean, it was one of those things where you want to see them working together, you want to see the concert at Central Park energy. Uh, it wasn't yeah. there. Let me ask you this, because um, I love your work uh, uh, with the Flying Burrito Brothers as the Flying mm-hmm. Burrito Brothers. And folks, mm-hmm. if, if you're not familiar with Chris's work there, if, you, if you're a fan of the band, for instance, you'll, you'll love the Flying Burrito Brothers. How do you distinguish, and I, I've asked a couple of folks this this week, how do you distinguish country rock from southern rock? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it... it, it it's so funny. I, I really have to attribute that uh, term. Uh, first, uh, it was like, I think, lazy journalism. You know what I okay. mean? It's like somebody wrote, wrote a piece on the birds in 65 after we had had success with Mr. Tambourine Man, Bob Dylan's song. Sure. And so, oh, folk rock. So we were, we were folk rock. We were, we were labeled folk rock, and we, we didn't sure. pay much attention. But then as we, as we grew as a band, and all of a sudden we did Eight Miles High, and then we were jazz rock, and then psychedelic <laughs> rock, sure. and it was going on and on. And I said... I'm waiting for polka rock. I'm waiting for it. Come on. And anyway, well, that, that was, you had to wait for Weird Al for yet for that, Chris. <laughs> so, and country rock comes along, or country music, you know. And yeah, but you know, the thing that's interesting, we were. It wasn't a stretch for us to do that. We had we already had cut. Well, the first time we cut a country song was the, the second Birds album in yeah. 1965. The, ta- the album uh, Turn, Turn, Turn was the title. And on that album is Satisfied Mind, a song oh, that Porter sure. Wagner had a huge hit with. And we cut it, and it worked. It was a great lyric. It worked for the Birds. And over the years, Andrew, we did some more country stuff. And then I did my first song I ever wrote was Time Between, the title of the book, great, and which really team. was a country rock song. Yeah, yeah. What's the difference? Um, I think there's just a little more emphasis on backbeat. I don't think there's really sure. that much difference. Uh, it's the same. It's the same uh, recipe. You know, it's 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 a, a, simpl- a simplistic chord pattern, a little more backbeat, uh, but basically it's. I don't know. It's like it's it like strikes saying, you both. The, the, both yeah. They're all the same. To me, they they both strike at a very at a very end, yeah. elemental level with people, and I mean well, that in the like, best way. It's like it's like it's like country music from Nashville and from Bakersfield are a little different. Sure. And it's because of the of the of the environment and and it was just a little different. It's still country music though. Sure. But anyway, uh, um, so there we are. And then um, yeah, I know. I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, Oh, of uh, you see things where you know that they're not getting along. My daughter went and saw a concert, a very, very famous act, and she said, gosh, they just don't like each other. Yeah. Now, she didn't know the history of this band, and but she she figured it out, and it was that's what was going on with them sure. at the time. The best thing I can tell you also, uh, we when we were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991, um, initially it was... Uh, uh, David and Roger and I had were there with our wives, and somehow Gene and Mike's wives couldn't make it, mm. and they didn't initially sit with us. And then Camilla McGuinn, Roger's wife, brought them over to the table. Sure. I will go on record: we were the probably the only band that sat together and wow. enjoyed that moment. Interesting. And we sat together, and we enjoyed that, and we were being honored for that moment and well in deserved. time. And then. 
and we played together that night. But there's you know, a lot of groups that go get, go in there and get awarded, and they don't even talk to each other. You know, absolutely. so that's too bad. But we did. We had a great. That was a great fitting. Uh, I don't. I'm tired of this word, but it was a it was a wonderful closure to a sure. great time. Yeah. Well, before. So, I got you know I was going to ask you about the the sort of that whole Laurel Canyon scene converting from the 60s into the 70s but I I think my listeners would be more interested in you know you talked about Linda Ronstadt a, a couple of minutes ago you talked about her uh, autobiography mm-hmm. and you talked about some of her work and obviously was uh, a part of of that scene uh going into this you know her working with mm-hmm. the the Beatles or not the Beatles the Eagles and getting them together um, but but more most importantly, and I think you share this with Linda Ronstadt, is you both make music on your terms, and, and talk about how important that is for musicians to sort of make the music that you want to make. Well, you gotta. I mean, here's another tired cliche. You gotta follow your heart. Yeah. And the worst thing as a songwriter, you don't you don't sit there and go, okay. Uh, I gotta write songs like 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 this song that's number one on the Billboard charts. Yeah. But the time you write that kind of a song and it does gets released and all, it's, it's already uh, water downstream. You've got to follow your heart and stay true to what you're doing. We all start out emulating, emulating others. It's getting to the point of innovating, right? Sure. You, you follow me? You, got, you get that. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. You go from, you're, you're, you're going, I, I learned off Bill Monroe records, and then I figured out I'm never going to be Bill Monroe, so I'm, I, I played the man in... Chris Hillman style, whatever that means. Sure. <laughs> but uh, that's a very important element. And, and uh, of course, the record companies, if you have an initial huge success on your first release, they want more of the same. Right. And you should sort of stay within the parameters of what you do well in your comfort zone. But you should never I, – I, I don't – really uh, believe in following someone saying, you need to do this kind of music to yeah. do. I've heard that all my life, and I didn't listen to it. When Desert sure. Rose Band got signed, all of a sudden, to MCA Curb, oh, we get yeah. signed, and all of a sudden I'm getting all these songs sent to me. Well, Nashville's a, a, song, a, a publishing town. Yeah. It's a songwriting town. And I'm looking at these songs, and I'm going, uh uh-uh. I'm not going to record these. These these are not what we are. And we stuck to our guns, and we had a successful. uh, We had about six or seven top ten singles and about two or three number ones. So we stuck to what we believed in. The Desert Rose Band. Yeah. Yeah. Such good music. Thank you. So I wish I could talk to you. Yeah, you got you get two more, but I'm sorry. I got no, 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 no. But I don't mind. I love talking to you, Andrew. But unfortunately, I'm limited here. Go Real ahead. quick, then, because that, then that's fine. Because I, I, what, what's, what's next? You're going to be in, in at, at Alexandria, Virginia, at the Birchmere in April. What is next for for you? Or is are you just playing music? Uh, what, what's what's going on? Uh, September 24th and 25th, I will be playing at in Thousand Oaks, California, which is sort of down the road from me. Sure. Uh, at the Civic Arts Theater, beautiful theater, and. Um, Roger McGuinn played there last month, and I sat in and sang with him, which was a joy. And now Roger and I go on stage, just to add what you saw with, with Simon Garfunkel. We would be playing with Marty Stewart. We'd sing a song together, and then we'd hug each other. Nice. <laughs> nice. Anyway, Love so that's it. where I'll be, Andrew. I'll be the 24th, 25th at Thousand Oaks at the uh, Thousand Oaks Civic Center for two nights. And um, after that, I'm not quite sure, but you'll probably see it on my uh, – Website. On your website. And yes, April, 
Yep, April 5th, Birchmere, 2022. April 5th, Birchmere, okay. Yes, sir. Um, April and, uh, 5th, 2022. Yeah, and it's yeah. such a, it's such a great venue. Um, love uh, the, the, the book. Love the club. Love Gary Oles. I love I love that. I work in there in four different entities. Wow. Four different bands. Well, <laughs> the, the the book is called Time Between My Life as a Bird, Burrito Brother, and Beyond. You can get signed hardcover copies at chrishillman.com. Chris Hillman, thank you so very much for joining me today. Andrew, what a pleasure, man. Thank you for calling me and having me on your show. That was very kind and I love talking to you. Thank you for being patient with us. I sir. wish it was I wish it was we had more time, but we'll I'm get you go back. Something. We'll get you buddy. back. Take care. God bless. Thank you. And that was Chris Hillman, uh, founding member of the Birds, founding member of the Flying Burrito Brothers, the 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 uh, Desert Rose Band. I'm Andrew Langer. This is WBAL News Radio 1090 and FM 101.5.